0: We are at a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we come to Colossians chapter 1. We'll starting reading with you in verse 15. Uh, we're also looking at this in the light of uh, the question of a worldview. Paul is not content merely to give them some teaching on the Christian life here or there. He is showing them a whole Christian view of the, of the world and life and all things. And uh, we've been considering various questions related to that. The question today, who is at the center? Who's at the center of your life? Well, let's read from Colossians chapter 1. I would like to start in verse 15, and we'll go down through verse 20. Uh, we're going to be focusing especially on the second half of this passage as we considered the first half a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> um <clears throat> Speaking of uh, Jesus here, continuing in verse 15, he, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, having peace with God, we rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we confess that uh, though we have known him, we have often known, not known him as we ought. Uh, he has not been at the center of all of our life and doings and thinkings. but we read again the truth of these words, and our hearts elate, that this world revolves around such a good and glorious one as this and that we truly have hope and every reason to live. We know that uh, your promises of which we just sang, that all the nations of the earth shall come and worship before you will surely be fulfilled in him. But, O Lord, we pray that it would begin with us. O teach us your way today, for Christ's sake. Amen. What should be at the center of your life? Uh, in other words, what are you going to live for? Maybe some of you are younger and you have your life before you and you think, well, wh- what am I going to have as the center of my being, of my living? Certainly you have a lot of options. I mean, there's making money, there's having fun, there's relationships and sports and hobbies, all kinds of things. Nothing wrong with those things except that they all make for a very lousy center for your life. You need something at the center that is solid and satisfying, something that is secure, that cannot be taken away. And that's what we're going to be learning about today, having Christ as the center of our lives and how that makes all the difference. Uh, I'd like to consider with you today, first, what this passage we've read teaches us about Him, and secondly, the difference between a Christ-centered worldview and a self-centered worldview. And then third and finally, we'll peek ahead in the book to see how this Christ-centered view of the world is to be lived out, practically speaking. So, kind of ambitious today, but uh, if you'd like to follow along and take notes, it's the old Puritan outline. Exposition, doctrine, application. First, exposition. What does this teach us? The passage before us today is, I think, one of those great mountain peaks of the Apostle Paul in his writings. It's just full of wonder and worship and joy. It's not just written for instruction, it's written for exaltation. It's, it's glorious. And it describes, of course, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in everything. Now, in our previous study a few weeks ago, in verses 15 through 17, we learned that Christ is preeminent over the natural creation, uh, over his natural creation, the world. So, um, Jesus is preeminent in the world. Just by brief way of review, we, we read these amazing words that he's the image of the invisible God, that all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and him all things consist. Uh, This is a dramatic and majestic portrait of the Son of God. He created you. He sustains you. Everything in your life, Paul wants you to be astounded that Jesus Christ is that which holds it all together. It's all in his hands. I, I, I asked you a few weeks ago then, is this the Jesus Christ that you know? Because lots of people have their own ideas about Jesus, but this is no mere teacher of Galilee. This is a dramatic, majestic portrait of the Son of God, the everlasting creator of the world who has become man, the creator who's come among his creatures, the ruler of the world who's come into the world. This is the portrait that we are given here. And that means that you also are not some accidental collocation of atoms. You don't just happen to be an interesting chemical reaction in a world gone crazy. Uh, You were made by a good, loving, wise creator whom you can know. And this is what people need to understand about themselves to know first the wonder of their life and secondly the tragedy of their life without Christ because it's all from him and through him and unto him. And here is the great confidence on the other hand of every Christian. It means that the reins of this universe are firmly in the hands of a man. They are in nail-scarred hands of the God-man who's loved us and given himself for us. Uh, That's kind of mind-blowing, but he's not done. For this passage goes on, of course, to tell us that our maker has become now our redeemer that Christ is not only preeminent over his natural creation, the world, but uh, secondly, and this is where we're picking up now, our text today, Christ is preeminent over his new creation, the church. God is doing something in this world in Jesus. And it begins in verse 18 by saying that he is the head of the body, the church. All right, the head of the body. What does that mean? Well, first, it obviously means that he's the, the ruler and leader of the church, that as head, he has supreme authority over it. As we read elsewhere, the church is to obey him in all things, and he rules over all things for the sake of his church. He, he's, a, he's our lawgiver. Christ teaches and leads and corrects his church by his word and his spirit. He, he is the, uh, the foundation and the focus of our faith and our worship. He has saved us to know him, to know the truth, and so uh, uh, he directs the body. Uh, uh, sorry, he directs the church as the head directs a body. But that metaphor means is much more, right? He could have said that in other words. By saying that he is the head of the body, the church, he's also saying that he is the source of our life and our growth. It emphasizes not just that we have some remote Lord who's keeping vigil over you day and night, that's told you what to do. Uh, he could have expressed that if he wanted to, but but no, he, he has. we have this intimate, vital connection to him. Jesus Christ is not a far-off figurehead or a commander, but a present Lord who is a husband to a bride or a head that nourishes and protects a body. As members of his body, we are brought together in him also as one. That becomes important later on that we are one body and he is our head. So there's this organic idea. The fact that he is the head and we are the body says that we are in a relationship with each other as well as with him. And he nourishes and cherishes the church as his own body as we read elsewhere. So that's important. Uh, third, Christ is the head of the church because he is the, the goal and purpose of of its existence, he's leading the way in that sense. The verse goes on to say that he's the beginning, the arche, the um, uh, first of all, the firstborn from among the dead, meaning that he's the originator and the beginning of a new creation. Uh, So to explain, there've been a few people in history that have come back from the dead, but all of those people, of course, died again. Something different has already begun to happen in Jesus. He he came to destroy death itself. He came to redeem you in every way. He has conquered death, and because he lives, we also will live. This is why it's so important we have this organic connection. He has already uh, experienced, has has been raised to life with a resurrection body, free from disease, decay or death, <clears throat> or the cold that I had this week, so, excuse me. And we will too. He comes to make all things new. He's, He's got a new creation that he is making in the church. He has already himself been raised to everlasting life, and he is therefore our future. He's the the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Well, Finally here, we see that Christ is also the reconciler of all things. We'll have more about that next time. But he is, if you like, the bridge now that joins together, God and man, the only mediator. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but Jesus. Verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness, that is the fullness of God, should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Well, I can't take too much more time with this because I'll have to speak about this next time and how the blood of the cross, this uh, passing reference, gives us all the hope in the world. But just let me say now, the point is that Jesus is the great hero of this world's story. This is not a sad story. Well, it's been sad so far in so many ways. But he is the turning point, the the one who's come into this world now to redeem us, to exchange your sin for his righteousness, to take your death and freely to give you his life. This is a great redeemer. He is our hope. He is our heaven. And the meaning, therefore, of all things, the true way of life, the destiny of every human being and the hope for the future, if you have any hope, is found in jesus christ because he is god all things come from him because we have gone astray we need a way back to him and because he alone is able to do it he has made a way back to us in his own blood and that blood has power then so all of this reminds us that jesus is not just one religious option among many preferences No, he is the ultimate expression of God's being, the image of the invisible God, his love and power and wisdom made visible. He is the one who upholds all things by power and purpose. And what's at stake here is actually the reason that you are breathing, his rule in history, and the confidence and joy that you can put in him, for he is able to deliver. Is this the Christ you know? This is a great Jesus. And I'm sorry for you, frankly, if I, I feel bad for you if you know any lesser Jesus than this because you need to know the real Jesus. I've mentioned before that surveys in America have re- reported a very disturbing trend of the increasing number of Christians or even evangelical Christians that actually have a much, much lower view of Christ. But I think that to know him as anything less is just not to know him at all. This is the Jesus You need to know. If if you're going to be a Christian, you need to know Jesus. This is the Jesus you need to know. Uh, To illustrate, there was a man named Arthur Burns some years ago whose name you might have heard. He's passed away now, but he was a brilliant economist. He taught at Rutgers and Columbia Universities. He became the 10th chairman of the Fed. He was an advisor to several presidents under Eisenhower. He chaired the Council of Economic Affairs. Reagan made him an ambassador to Germany. In other words, he was a Bright guy, a very gifted man. In the in the '70s, there was this uh, group that was meeting at the White House for Christian fellowship and prayer, and uh, Burns wandered in one day and he began attending that gathering, which was rather surprising because Burns was Jewish, but here he was at this Christian prayer meeting week after week. Now Burns never led in prayer; no one ever asked him to pray. The prayers were voluntary, and 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 people had respect for his Jewish faith. But after a couple months, this newcomer joined the meeting, and uh, he just didn't know Burns' background, and so he he just naturally asked him at the end of the meeting if he wouldn't mind closing in prayer. Well, Burns bowed his head, and he said, "Uh, "'Lord, I pray that you would bring Jews to know Jesus Christ.'" I pray that you would bring Muslims to know Jesus Christ. Finally, Lord, I pray that you would bring Christians to know Jesus Christ. (laughs) Amen. I don't know if we ever went to any meetings after that. But this is what we need to know. Paul is writing these words for this reason. He's saying, Christians, know Jesus. Know this Jesus. Eternal life Jesus says, is knowing the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And e- even those of us, of course, who know Jesus don't know him as fully and intimately as we want. For when we know him as we ought, then we be- begin to think about life as we ought to think about it and to live as we ought to live. And, and that is where Paul is going with this. He, he will transition from just knowing Christ to a Christian worldview, or a Christ-centered worldview, which is my second point to you today. Now that you've understood who we're talking about, the, the the exposition of the passage, let's consider it a Christ-centered versus a self-centered worldview. As I've explained in previous weeks, everyone has a worldview. It's like a belly button. I mean, everyone has one, though they don't think about it or talk about it very much. But you have it. And unlike a belly button, it's very important. It is a deeply held set of convictions at the center of all your thoughts and your choices and your actions. And what Paul is explaining at the beginning of this letter, how Jesus Christ introduces a Copernican revolution in your life or your worldview. A Copernican revolution. Do you, all of you, especially you children, Do you know what a Copernican revolution is? Copernicus was a famous 16th century scientist who demonstrated that the sun and the other planets don't all revolve around the Earth, but in fact, the Earth and the other planets revolve around the sun. It was a new thought for many people, even though, of course, the Greeks knew this like centuries before, right? we are not at the center of the solar system and the the planets are not just strangely wandering stars that go in bizarre directions. Um, People thought that for a long time. Understanding that the sun was in fact at the center made sense and and put everything in its proper place. As soon as they saw it, they said, oh, things are not crazy and chaotic as as we thought with these wandering stars planets. Oh, no. Uh, Having the blazing sun at the center gives gives, uh, everything meaning and proper place and and all the calculations come out correctly then. Uh, It was called a Copernican revolution. We're not at the center. Well, in a similar way, Paul's teaching is intended, certainly, to be a revolution in our lives. Man is not the measure of all things. I know that some people at school have yet to hear this, right? They're they're still believers in the old, you know, man is at the center thing, right? But man is not the measure of all things. Christ is the glorious center of all things. Our lives are all wrapped up in his. And Paul goes on to describe what this means in some really dramatically beautiful language. Uh, 127. Christ in you hope of glory. Um, How'd you like that for a uh, Copernican revolution? Uh, 3.3 You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, Verse 4 Christ who is our life. These dramatic statements uh, reveal to us a Copernican revolution that we we are in fact all tied up with him and uh, I'll I'll explain in a moment how this very practically applies to every area of our life Uh, but let me say it here you might know from history that Copernicus's discovery didn't go unopposed a great many scholars even Renaissance churchmen opposed his teaching it did not go over well for people to hear that everything doesn't revolve around us what do you mean right it's like a two-year-old right What do you mean everything doesn't revolve around me? Um, It did not go over well for human beings to learn that everything didn't actually revolve around us. And the Jesus revolution has had a similar uh, response. It is is also resisted, not only in the Renaissance day, of course, but in every generation. So I have to explain before we go on the difference between a Christ-centered worldview and a self-centered worldview because this is, this is really where the rubber begins to meet the road. A few years ago, yeah, yeah, the baby boom generation was called the me generation. Um, if, you're, if you're younger, you probably never heard that, that language used because they, they dropped it. It, it. They thought this was something about one generation. And the truth is, it's just the new normal, right? Like we're, it turns out we're all, just, we're all the me generation now. We're, we're just living in a more and more narcissistic age. Or no, what do we say? Authentic. Oh, we're living in a more authentic age. It's all me, right? Let me be me. Frank Sinatra gave us our theme song, I did it my way. The Reebok ad gave us our attitude, quote, cheat on your girlfriend, not on your workout, right? We've tried harder and harder to uh, try to Find uh, meaning and satisfaction and uh, everything by by having the world more and more revolve around us and um, just like the uh, just like the ancient astronomers they couldn't make it all work right uh, it's a losing battle for us spiritually because only the Creator can be at the center only He can satisfy the mind and heart and soul of the creatures only He has something to cheer about really okay so. Uh, So there's this tension between a Christ-centered worldview and a self-centered worldview, a tension that affects us all. It's not just a problem for others. Um, Some people, when they become Christians, they then try to take Christ and put him into a secular or self-centered, I should say, self-centered worldview. Um, So, uh, for example, if this world revolves around you making money, well, then we'll preach prosperity theology, that God will give you health and wealth. Or if this world is uh, all about, uh, if your world revolves around winning the rat race at work, well, as Christians, then, we seek Christ's blessing on our rat. We want our rat to win the race. Or if our lives revolve around being comfortable in our circumstances, then as Christians, we want Christ to make us more comfortable. And if we don't receive that and we get very upset this all this is just trying to keep ourselves at the center while we add Christ into the mix we'll say yeah that sun can revolve around the earth that's okay but um, this is not the way it ought to be for some people they they make their spirituality a kind of path to self-actualization or self-reflection it's like the new Enneagram you know it's like you can find out who you are as a Christian. What's your spiritual gift? I think uh, you know Christian self-reflection is useful, but certainly not preeminent. Christ is preeminent. The, the, as an extreme example, there was uh, Mickey Cohen, the uh, famous Los Angeles gangster, one of the most famous gangsters in the world in the 1940s. He uh, he met with Billy Graham for several hours. He even made something of a profession of faith in Christ, but but he remained a gangster, and 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 uh, when, when he was. Remaining a gangster, he was confronted and, and he supposedly replied, quote, You never told me I had to give up my career. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. What's the matter with being a Christian gangster? Okay. That's an extreme example, he's trying to make Christ revolve around his little miserable world. Paul warns us against this kind of misunderstanding, this kind of false thinking. Uh chapter 2, verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. You can't fit Christ into some other system or view of the world. I, I warn you, adding Christ especially into a self-centered world, will make you more and more miserable. It is for our own joy that the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus when He is at the center. Everything else falls into place. Uh, Every question of your life is answered. Why am I here? What is my life for? Where am I going? These and all and all the other questions you can name, He holds the key. So He is something. He is someone worth living for. He is our rock and our refuge. The one who will be um, helping us and making us glad. He makes known to us the path of life. In His presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 16. There is, <clears throat> there is no stage of Christian experience in which Christ becomes anything else than our all-in-all. All. Like he, he can never become more or less sufficient. He is sufficient. He is preeminent. In whatever state you come to Him, in whatever need you present afterward, in whatever you may fear, Whatever difficulty or trial or temptation, whatever the sins of your past, of your present, or of your future, Jesus Christ is everything you need. He is our hope and our joy, and it all makes sense when it revolves around him, which is, by the way, why I can't understand the attraction of whatever the newest thing that comes along the pike. That always seems to get a whole bunch of people following whatever it promises, whatever the, the the newest idea is, or even sometimes old ideas. I can't understand the uh, attraction of the things like the Da Vinci Code or the even the Book of Mormon or the Gospel of Judas when that came out and a whole bunch of people flocked to it. <gasps> what does that have to tell us? I mean, look, frankly, if anybody is ever promising you anything better than this, anything more than this that you have in Jesus. There is nothing more than what you already have, he's saying. And it honestly holds no attraction for me. Be careful that your heart isn't drawn away by what's frankly a worthless object. What more could you want than Christ in you, the hope of glory? (coughs) What more could angels, he mentions later, what, what more could angels possibly give you than what he's already given? What more could they be than what he is? And when people are led astray... It's not that Christ has failed them. It's that they've failed Christ. They've never understood that he is our all in all. Here is Paul's emphasis, and I don't mean to beat the dead horse here proverbially, but in this passage, I, I say again, he, he's, he goes on, you have been made full, he says. You have been made complete. And Paul shows that this cuts the ground out of every rival, out of every Im- promise he uses these buzzwords later in the letter mystery fullness deliverance triumph knowledge maturity perfection you know as if to say these are all the things you have in Jesus what what more could false teachers possibly promise you you have it in Jesus what what more you have more than you could even absorb you cannot exhaust the treasures of the riches that are yours in Christ there is nothing that anyone could offer you. So take heed, he warns, that even in the Christian life, a self-centered worldview will constantly press in, and the more that Christ is out and that we ourselves are in, the more that we will be in a downward spiral and looking for something to make sense of uh, of this life, and it will not succeed. So, ours it is every day to say Christ is preeminent, Christ is at the heart of it all, and when he is there, everything is as it should be. All right, now we've considered the meaning of the passage. We've considered what it implies for a Christ-centered rather than a self-centered worldview. We've had exposition and doctrine. We conclude with application. How can we live this out? All right, there's a, uh, there's a question that sometimes new PhD students are asked at the beginning of their program. It goes like this. Do you want a doctorate, or do you want to earn a doctorate? Do you want a doctorate, or do you want to earn a doctorate? You see, there's an uncomfortable difference between these two things. There are some people who really want the letters doctor in front of their names, those, those, those letters DR, period. There's a fewer number who actually want to do the work to become a scholar. And in a similar way, the preeminence of Christ presents a challenge to us. Do you want to be called a Christian? Or would you rather be a Christian? I think it's the the motto of North Carolina, S.A. Quam Whittiery, to be rather than to seem. That's, That's something of the question that's before us. Do you want to be a Christian? Or do you want to be called a Christian? Do you want to be thought of as yielded to God's will? Or do you want to yield to God's will? Do you want to appear that what matters most to us is Christ? Or do you want Christ really to be mattering most of all? Are you, are you, are you going to be satisfied with the veneer of Christ's likeness? Or are you going to be satisfied with nothing less than Christ himself? Uh, here we go. The second half of the letter then presses these things home to us. What it means in every area of life to be Christ-centered, to have Christ at the center of home and work and church and every other area, right? Um, the, the second half of the letter lays it out, and I'm only going to give a few examples. We'll consider them at length when we get there. But I just want you to see how it all works together, how the worldview works In practice and how comprehensive it is okay so we'll think first about the mind you know there's a lot of stuff that you can fill your mind with there's a lot of opportunities with podcasts and all kinds of stuff right to fill your mind with all kinds of things what are you gonna put in your mind Um, Paul tells us um, in uh, chapter 3 How Christ is to be preeminent in our mind, in our thoughts. Chapter 3, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. He goes on and explains sinful things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. All right, there's a lot of sin out there. There's a lot of negativity out there. A lot of negativity out there. More every day, it seems. And what a joy it is to fill our minds with all that is good and true and encouraging and great and glorious in Jesus Christ. So, fill your minds. Paul teaches also here uh, in the second part of the letter that how Christ is to be the center of the church's life. I mean, I guess that's obvious if he's the head and we're the body of the church. But he, he, he's not content with generalities. He wants us to know that it makes all the difference to uh, who we have our loving friendships with, right? I mean, there are people here that you probably don't know very well. Who, probably you wouldn't know them at all unless they both happen to be in loving the same savior. Okay, well, who you love and how you love them are very much tied up with the fact that Christ has made you one body. The fact that Christ is all and in all has a lot to do with how we treat each other. I explain it to you this way. The novel Anna Karenina opens with these words. It begins, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, I think that's kind of funny, but I, I think that applies to churches too. There are a great many ways that churches could be unhealthy. But there's only one way. There's one common factor in all healthy churches, which is this. Christ is preeminent in everything that it is, everything that it does, everything that it teaches in its life. Christ is to be preeminent in the healthy church. And he goes on to explain. But uh, he's not done. Paul tells us how Christ is to be preeminent in our daily work. Uh, To servants, he says, for example, look, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord not to men, stop working for that man. Stop work. Start working for the man above. Uh, a very comprehensive statement. Um, he says in the third chapter, he says to all, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus. Uh, we could say what, what you do in your office work, what you do when you, as you ply your trade, what you do when you're cooking those meals day after day, when you're doing your student assignments that uh, don't seem to be as enjoyable, as you would have liked. Um, Well, look, do it to the Lord. And from the Lord, he says, you'll receive the recompense of the reward. And he says, he should be preeminent in all that you do, whether you do anything in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, He should be preeminent in everything. He should be preeminent, Paul goes on to say, in our relationships, for instance, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Right? When you get Christ, Christ is at the center. Here's this one who shed his blood for you. And now your relationships are going to reflect this orbit. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Christ preeminent. Christ preeminent in the home, he says. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and so forth. Um, so, uh, also as, as one body in the church, uh, whether it's neither Greek or Jew, or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Sorry, I'm reading these too fast. Uh, the, the point is, um, th- these people in the ancient world hated each other, right? I mean, you think Palestinians and, and Jews have bad blood? <sighs> okay, th- there's, there's some very, very bad blood in the background of, the, of these things. And, and now, Paul says to this church, look, here, for your relationships, there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, what they used to call each other, barbarian, Scythian, um, slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. That is to say, in who you relate to and how you relate to them, Christ is to be preeminent. Christ is to be preeminent, he goes on to say, in your heart. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And be thankful. 315. Um, all right. Uh, di- didn't we just read a few minutes ago that, that Jesus has the whole world in his hands? It, that, that he is the one who s- sustains it all. It's all f- from him and, th- and through him and unto him and all that? Um, well, then shouldn't the peace of God rule in your hearts? And and shouldn't you be thankful? Shouldn't, that, shouldn't Christ be preeminent then in your heart? Uh, I give you an analogy. Have you ever played with a toy called a Superball? I uh, loved these when they were little, when they first came out. You, you, you throw these uh, super Superballs on the ground and then they bounce dozens of feet in the air to the uh, consternation of every embarrassed mom, right? Uh, wisdom in the store, they're hitting cans and stuff, right? Um, they have an enormous bounce. Why? Because the center of the ball is a compact, solid core. It's not some mushy middle like a tennis ball maybe, right? It's a solid core that gives it a snappy bounce back. And, and when your core is solid, brothers and sisters, when your core is solid in Christ, you have bounce back. You have resilience. You have an inner strength. Paul says you, you think about this Christ. You let him fill your horizon, and, and you will find that peace begins to replace worry and thankfulness, greediness, and anxiety. Paul goes on and touches on several other topics. I'm just trying to point out to you that that once Christ is at the center, everything else goes to be as it should be. Here's a summary from chapter 1, verse 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. That is to say, Christ is the one who gives him the power to do all that he does. And he is, Christ is the great goal of all of Paul's work and others. The goal is not merely to give people a Christ-centered worldview. I'm not just here to preach worldview to people. I'm here to preach to you Christ the goal is to give people christ himself and all of his power and greatness and fullness and glory and hope christ is what's making all the difference it made all the difference in paul's life and paul wanted others to know his joy so i have to ask now as i'm sure you've already asked yourself do you know this christ do you know this joy do you know it i'm not here to preach to you about worldviews or philosophy or some lifestyle, or some devotional plan. I'm not making an argument. I am preaching to you a person who makes all the difference, and you need to know him. You need to know him. Nothing will be right. You'll be like those middle people in the Middle Ages trying to make the calculations of these wandering planets. It just never turns out. Nothing that they do works out right, because things are not meant for us to be at the center. You need to know him who is preeminent. Adolis Huxley, the famous agnostic, was once, in his life at least, profoundly moved by the gospel. He was at a weekend house party, and a Sunday morning came, and many of the guests were going to church, and Huxley was not about to go, but he did approach a rather plain man and said, "Um, suppose you didn't go to church today, and instead stay at home and tell me quite simply what your Christian faith means to you, and why you are a Christian. (laughs) The man replied, oh, I can't do that. You would demolish my arguments in a minute, right? Huxley is a very bright agnostic philosopher. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. I don't want to argue with you, Huxley replied. I want you to tell me simply what this Christ means to you. So the man stayed at home, and he told Huxley of his faith. And when he finished, there were tears in the eyes of that uh, brilliant, fiery agnostic. And what had touched his heart, it was not the man's arguments, but it was hearing somebody who had actually met Jesus. Um, Arguments have their place, arguments are well and good. You need to know Jesus. You need to know the one who is preeminent. You need to know this one who, when you meet him, will not just give you a new worldview. You meet him, and your life will never be the same again. That is what I wish for you, my friends. Uh, I'd like to conclude with the words of old John Owen as he addressed the English House of Commons nearly four centuries ago. He spoke to the most powerful men of the nation in the day of their glory, their rule. He announced, Christ is the way. That men without him are canes, wanderers, vagabonds. Christ is the truth and men without him are liars like the devil of old. He is the life and men without him are dead in trespasses and sins. He is the light and men without him are in darkness and do not know where they go. He is the vine. Men that are not in him are like withered branches prepared for the fire. He is the rock. Men not built on him are carried away with a flood. Owen concluded, he is the Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. The author and the one that ends. The founder and finisher of our salvation. And he that does not have him has neither the beginning of good, nor shall he have the end of misery. Know this Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, uh, what can we say to such a magnificent passage, only that I have not begun to do it justice? As, as clowns long to play Hamlet, so I longed to write a good sermon on this magnificent text, and I have not come any closer than I thought I would, but You are able to teach, O Father, what I am not able to by Your Spirit. You are able to, to pry into the depths of the hearts and minds of these people and to reveal something that I cannot of the greatness and the glory and the infinite majesty that are found in Your own beloved Son. And so I pray, Christian or no, I pray that everyone here would go home today and say, this one needs to be the center of my heart and life and relationships and work and church and everything else. He is the one I need. And oh, Father, present every man, completing Christ,